And uh, children, you guys are dismissed to go with the Redemption Kids. Good morning. My name is John Reddy. I'm a member here at Redemption Hill Church who gets the second double pleasure of serving in the role of pastor as well. And so as a member, Sunday after Sunday, I've had the privilege of sitting right where you're sitting and hearing some great teachers who've been sharing from this platform from our summer series 39, Treasuring the Old Testament Together. And I don't know about you, but I've been personally challenged every week as we've taken sort of a peek at a key Old Testament scripture and we've considered sort of the implications of that truth. And so before we sort of dive into this morning's scripture, I'm going to ask you an honest question, and I want you to think about it. I want you to think hard about it. And then once you've answered it in your mind, I'm going to ask if you would maybe slip up your hand and just let me know something's occurred to you. I promise I'm not going to call on anybody. This isn't a time for me to interview you. I just want to make sure that, that we establish a starting point for every one of us here. So this morning, here's my question. Who annoys you? Not what, not what annoys you, who annoys you? Who frustrates you? Who, when their name is mentioned or when their face comes into your mind's eye, who's an obstacle to your inner peace? Maybe they've hurt you. Maybe they've misunderstood you. Maybe they've wounded you deeply. Who knows, you may even, as we're sitting here, consider them to be an enemy. The person that comes to your mind, it might be an active battle right in the current, right in the present. Or it's possible it could be somebody from your distant past. It may be that you're not sure necessarily what you've done in their lives to deserve it. You may not technically hate that person or think that you hate them. But during your times of word and prayer, you struggle to envision praying that God would bless them, let alone you bless them. Got that person in your mind? I do. And so because you've answered that question, Let me tell you where we're going to go this morning, even before we read our Old Testament scripture. Christ followers, Christ followers should exercise father-honoring self-control towards difficult others with spirit-empowered surrender. Last week, I sat in that upper section back there, and David Butler, our Send Boston missionary for church planning, he did an awesome job as he looked at the book of Joshua and the story of the Israelites crossing the Jordan River. And like a mighty rushing Jordan River, he asked us, what might be standing between ourselves and the future that God has for us? In order to move towards that preferred future that God has for each one of us, He challenged us to consecrate ourselves. He said to be all in, going all out for the all in all. And to consecrate ourselves, 
he suggested that there's probably stuff that we need to get rid of, stuff that we need to let go of, stuff that is in the way. For me, as I sat there, and perhaps for many of you this morning, a toxic, painful relationship may have come to your mind. And then I'm hoping a holy recognition that perhaps in the middle of that painful relationship, one where perhaps you haven't demonstrated godly self-control towards that difficult person, that God's mercy would come into your life and remove that barrier. This morning, I'm hoping that by looking at a story that we're going to find in the first book of Samuel that involves David and involves the stealer of his peace, King Saul. And my prayer for each one of us, and myself included, is that we're going to discover and we're going to experience the power of God's word and the power of his spirit to produce the kind of change in every one of us that moves us from confused and pained to actually convicted with choices and actions that honor God our Father. And so before I dive into this morning's scripture, would you pray with me by simply repeating while I pray? Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts and change our lives. If you've got your Bible, I'm going to ask you to open it up to our Old Testament reading. It's found in 1 Samuel 24, and uh, we're going to read that whole chapter this morning. And so I'm just going to tell you, keep your finger in there or keep your smartphone open for it. Before we start reading, let me just put this text in its context, because after all, we're starting in the 24th chapter, right? First and Second Samuel was written to highlight the establishment of the monarchy in Israel and the preparation and the rule that David was going to have in order to sit on the royal throne after Saul. This book is named after the prophet Samuel. It's likely written by his disciples, and it begins with the birth and the dedication and the call of Samuel as a prophet. In his role as prophet, he also functioned as a judge over Israel, but eventually the nation much to the consternation of God himself, demanded a king that they would be like the other nations that surrounded them. And so as a result, a handsome-looking, strong soldier named Saul is identified as the first king of Israel. And he's anointed, it says, by the prophet Samuel. And while Saul experiences some success in many battles against the Philistines, He's continuously disobedient towards God, especially pride and arrogance flows from his heart with respect to the word of the Lord that was flowing through the prophet Samuel. And so eventually, God decides that he is going to remove his hand from Saul and Saul's kingship. As a result, Samuel is instructed by God to recognize the next king of Israel, and after looking at all of his brothers, the youngest, the weakest, and the least experienced David, is identified by God. And it's God who reminds Samuel that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
by God's providence, David is brought into Saul's court as a musician to soothe Saul's troubled mental health. Eventually, the classic story that many of us know takes place, and David battles the giant Goliath and miraculously slays him and earns the respect and the admiration of the nation as well as the enemies of the nation. David proved himself faithful and time and time again battles Philistines with great success and continues to earn more and more fame. But Saul's insecurity, Saul's jealousy, it seeps into his heart. And in Saul's mind, it makes David an enemy that has to be dealt with harshly. So despite David's faithfulness to Israel's anointed monarch, he wisely flees from Saul's reach. And he endures many times of humiliation and difficulty which brings us to this morning's place of intersection, the caves at En Gedi. And so picking up in verse 1 in uh, chapter 24, it reads as so. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. The original band of 400 men, which is not a large force by David, by this time it's swollen to perhaps 600. But here we're told that Saul, in his hatred, was pursuing him with 3,000 elite warriors, nearly five times the size of David's force. Probably some local informant gave Saul a tip and directed him towards this region of En Gedi, this region that's located on the western shore of the Dead Sea. En Gedi, or as it was known, the spring of the young goat, it was one of several spring-fed oases that were between some lower portions of some cliffs in the desert of Judah and the Dead Sea coastline. And because it was an oasis, It was a good place. It was a wise place as a temporary refuge. It had lots of limestone caves that had been carved into the hillside. Well, in this encounter, we're told that Saul, he kind of needed to make a pit stop. And so as a result, he entered into one of the caves. The actual Hebrew here says that he covered his legs, which is a, a euphemism for evacuating his bowels. And so you can understand None of his bodyguards decided that they were going to accompany him into the cave. I think we can understand that. Let's keep reading. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. And then the scripture says, David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Well, as it turns out, there's many, many caves in the desert of En Gedi. Saul just happens to pick the one where David and his men are hiding, deep in the recesses of a limestone cave. 
It's kind of interesting, isn't it? While Saul is busy relaxing and, and reading the Jerusalem Daily News, David's men, they have a sort of a spirited debate amongst each other. They have a conversation. The conversation is about what God's will is for David and David's life. And it's interesting how sometimes we do that for each other. We sort of spend more time trying to figure out what God's will is for somebody else than thinking about what God's will is for our own. And the assumption that David's men make here is clearly the Lord, Yahweh, had miraculously provided an opportunity to kill Saul. They were convinced there was no other explanation possible. In fact, they cite a prophecy, but the prophecy they cite, there's no such specific promise that's recorded in the scriptures. Now, it's possible that maybe they were interpreting events that they had seen in David's life, and they were convinced that God had delivered Saul into his hands. That's a common uh, expression, a common idiom in the ancient Near East, especially in military uh, settings. To de be delivered into somebody's hands meant that your God had abandoned you and placed you specifically into your enemy's hands. And as a result, you now had power and you had victory over them. Well, in any case, we're told that after some discussion, David does sneak into position and he cuts a portion of Saul's robe. Now, it's not likely that Saul was wearing it. It's, he was probably had removed his robe. Nevertheless, to accomplish this would have taken great skill and boldness and cunning by David. So let me ask you, at this point in the story, why do you think David did this? What was his motivation, do you think? After all, this would have been a great risk if somehow or other he was discovered, 3,000 hardened stormtroopers would be coming at him in an instance. So why do you think David did it? It may be that David, you might think, is one of those thrill-seeking trophy collectors, someone whose personality is so impulsive towards danger and the addictions of adrenaline, the type that probably pops up the YouTubes and Instagrams that sometimes we like to see. Some of you may be thinking, well, Maybe he just wanted some evidence of his goodwill towards Saul, proof that he had an opportunity to kill without actually killing. But when we read this scripture carefully, David's own reaction sheds some really important light for us. And so let's pick up again at verse 5. The scripture says, And afterward, David's heart struck him. Did you get that? Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. 
So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Well, I'm thinking if David's choice was either thrill-seeking or the gathering of proof of his innocence, then why is David's conscience pricked? What's the problem? Like, why would he be experiencing feelings of guilt? And I think what I'd want to share with you so that we can understand this a little bit better is that this seemingly small task of cutting the corner of a robe was actually a very powerful symbolic act. You see, in Mesopotamia, the larger region where Israel was, a piece from a hem of clothing was used as a type of authorization or a transfer of authority. You see, that little piece sometimes would represent a signing of a legal significance. It wasn't religious and magical. You know, like sometimes you hear stories of people taking a lock of hair in order to place a curse against somebody? That's magical. It wasn't like that. It had legal jurisdiction. And therefore, to steal that piece of cloth had profound meaning to David and to anyone that would bear witness to it. He was saying, Saul's reign is over. David's reign now begins. And so in David's mind, Saul's kingdom is symbolically transferred to David now. And although David doesn't commit a murderous act, this small cutting of the robe represents a declaration of revolt. David wanted from Saul what he wanted from Saul now. And so when we first read it, and, I, and I've been with folks that look at this scripture quickly, it looks like it's a completely merciful act on David's part. And in, there, in some respects it is, but when we look closer, it's really the story of seizing an opportunity from an enemy. It's really a story of impatience towards God's timing. And it's really a secretive motivation that's percolating in David's heart, even as he cuts. The tearing of the robe against Saul was a small, but it was really a revealing act. And David, David knew it. The fact that David immediately regretted this violation of Saul's robe suggests that his motivation wasn't so high-minded. In fact, it differed in degree just a little bit from the primitive instincts that even his men were urging him. David did show some restraint, and we might commend that, but what we need to understand is in this act, David's heart was not pure. See, up until now, David had been willing to live on the margins of the kingdom, and he was willing to wait until God gave him the kingdom. This act was an act of impatience. It was the act of grabbing authority that didn't belong to him. And so this act was going too far. 
See, we need to remember that even in his disobedience, Saul was still anointed as king by David, by, by God. And once he was anointed, he was set apart. He was consecrated to go back to that word, to God. And so to touch, to defile, to attack the anointed one, listen, was to approach the Lord himself and to defile harm and remove the Lord and his authority from its rightful place. I put it like this, to touch God's anointed in this instance, even one who's disobedient, even one who's not working, walking in the pure will of God, was to stoke rebellion against the Lord himself. David's authority superseded God's authority to deal with and discipline Saul himself. God was going to take care of the situation, but it was going to be in his time, not in David's. And so David hadn't just lifted his hand against Saul, he had lifted his hand against God's will and purposes for Saul. And so David, as the scripture says, knew it immediately after this impulsive act of rebellion. You see, like so many people that are involved in our lives that are difficult for us, no matter how difficult Saul was making David's life, David was not free to serve as the final authority in that situation. And so David recognized this, and he, and he puts his brakes on any further actions against Saul. He, the way I look at it is he comes back from the cliff of wrong decision-making. And I like what one scholar uh, uh, says here. Yahweh's will must be achieved in Yahweh's way. The end that God had ordained must be reached by the means that God approved. And so David, in this instant, repents from what I call the temptation of the shortcut. It's a common temptation. We're all subject to it. We all have stories being played out, and many of those stories involve people that are difficult for us. And our temptation is to circumvent and go around God's unraveling of how that story plays out, and we're tempted to the shortcut. Interestingly, David, he's not just content with personal learning, because we know he's a leader of men. He's got 600 around him, and he feels an obligation to bring this new realization, this truth, back to his men. Now, what I just read for us the English version says that David persuaded his men with these words, but the Hebrew verb here is much stronger. It says that David went back and he tore into or tore apart his men with ferocity. His words back to them was words of strong rebuke. It matched the greatness of the growing conviction that David was now falling under. And having done that, he turns his attention back to Saul and so should we. Let's pick up at verse 8. Afterward, David also arose, and he went out of the cave, and he called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. 
I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog. After a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. You see, David calls out to Saul, but he doesn't give Saul an opportunity to reply. David's not going to take a chance on missing an opportunity to appeal for peace. And so he asked Saul, why do you listen to the words of men? It's interesting because just a few lines back, David had lots of words of men coming at him and he had rejected them even as they urged him to kill Saul. We know if he had followed the words of men, it would have meant bringing David into direct conflict with the purposes of God being worked out in Saul's life. But the scripture here does say David does challenge Saul, but he does it, and I think this is instructive for us in the middle of our difficult relationships. He does it with great care and great wisdoms. Take a look. First of all, David is respectful of Saul's position. In word, he, he refers to him as my lord, the king. Indeed, it says that he bowed down humbly before him. In tone, David doesn't directly accuse Saul of any wrongdoing, but he indicates that Saul is maybe ill-informed or maybe ill-advised. Even though David is well aware of Saul's own jealousy and irrational behavior, he had seen it while in the courts as he served, and he knew that it was part of the present trouble that he faced. But he gave Saul an opportunity to save face. And then David goes on, and he does make a case for himself. Just think about what he says. He declares his innocence. He says, I'm innocent. False rumors from the past, they're not to be believed. Has anyone here in the middle of their difficult relationships ever been surrounded by false rumors and innuendo that just clouds and makes those relationships more difficult. And then David says an old-time uh, proverb, out of evildoers comes evil. And by showing him that clipped robe, he says, Paul, he says, uh, Saul, here's the evidence that I've been merciful and a person extending mercy cannot be an evildoer. He says, I'm loyal. I did this, Saul, in order to refuse an opportunity to kill you, an opportunity that many people would have urged me to do. 
He says, and there's a bit of a overspeak here, he says, I'm humble. He refers to himself as a dead dog. He refers to himself as a flea. These are terms of self-abasement. It's kind of like if a Bostonian admitted to being a Yankees fan, I think. And finally, he says, Saul, I represent no threat to you. I had an opportunity for vengeance, but I've exercised restraint. And then I think what we need to understand right here, right now, is the whole pivot point of this encounter. Having spoken assertively, David does not seek his security in any change of heart in Saul. He doesn't seek his security in any fresh promise coming from Saul. Instead, look at what he does. He casts his case upon Yahweh. David calls upon God as judge. He calls for Yahweh's justice. In fact, this is repeated both in verses 12 and verse 15 again. See, I think David realizes, given the history and the circumstance, that he has no guarantee of justice from the very one that as king was supposed to execute justice. Saul, as king over Israel, was called to be a just king. And so David here has to appeal above the king and instead appeals to Yahweh, the Lord, the one who makes kings. And I think for David and I think for us here this morning, this becomes the foundation for David's growing self-control. He has confidence in God's character. He has confidence in God's justice. And he has confidence in God's timing. There may be vengeance brought upon Saul, but it's not going to come about by any vigilante effort by David. A history of unfairness, abuse, and mistreatment from Saul was not going to change that now in this moment or even into the future. And having made his case, Saul has a chance to respond. And so let's uh, pick up in the next verse, 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid my good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. We've been looking at the Old Testament now for a number of weeks and, and a common feature 
of Old Testament narrative storytelling is the use of what we call contrastive dialogue, which is just a fancy word for two people talking to each other, each one of them representing a different point of view. In 1 Samuel, almost the entirety of 1 Samuel has been written, and it's showing a growing difference between Saul and David in its storytelling, but especially at this point. See, both have been anointed, but we know that the spirit of Yahweh is actually being withdrawn from Saul, even as it's growing in David with each successive trial and experience. David's respectful, powerful call-out that we just looked at is now compared to Saul's what I call choked cry. Saul appears contrite, but it's contrition with limitations. His tears are probably being shed from self-pity rather than repentance. The center of attention for Saul still remains on Saul, not the agenda of God. Nevertheless, Saul does acknowledge David, and he calls out to him. And then it's followed by an admission that what David has said is true. Here, Saul seems conflicted even as he chokes these words out through his tears, for he knows that he's doomed as a judgment. David will be king. But interestingly, here Saul doesn't accuse David of any disloyalty. Here, he just recognizes God's judgment. And so resigned to this, Saul asks for what he now wants. He says, be merciful. I think many of the difficult people in our lives, that might be one of the first things that they ask for us when they come to points of recognition. Will we be a people that extend mercy? He says, be merciful towards my family. You see, when a monarchy changes, rising rulers by practice often kill surviving family members. So there's no future coups. There's no other claims to the throne. His appeal to his seed and to his name is an appeal for the safety of his descendants. For David, that was not going to be a difficult mercy to extend. It echoed promises that David had already made to Jonathan, Saul's son. But those promises were made from a point of love and care, not of fear. As it turns out, Saul and many of his sons eventually and tragically were killed. But it was the Philistines, it was Gibeonites, not David. David, it appears, is avenged without personal guilt. He honors this request of mercy going forward, and we know that eventually extended mercy to Mephibosheth, the only remaining offspring in 2 Samuel chapter 9. I like what Bill Arnold says. He says, unlike most ancient monarchs, David shows a God-pleasing and compassionate magnanimity towards his enemies. In a sense, he is truly a man after God's own heart, just like God had reminded Samuel when he had called David out. Well, our final verse finishes this path of the story. It says here that David swore this to Saul, 
Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. It's good. There's not a sense of what I would call full restoration, but there is kind of a peace. There's a sort of truce that settles in. David and Saul, they do part company. There's still more story to be played out for sure. In fact, it's interesting, in the very next verse, 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 1, it reports the death of Samuel the prophet. And I think that death probably represented the last means of what I would call full reconciliation. And maybe that explains why when David left, it says that he went to a more secure location. Well, that's a long story from a long book. There's a lot of implications that are presented in the scripture, and there's a lot of applications that might even be running through your mind right now. I'm going to ask if you'll indulge me. I want to just stop and think just a little bit about the nature of self-control towards a difficult person. We saw it demonstrated and illustrated by David, and I'm hoping that just a brief look at this, you'll find it hopeful and helpful. Self-control is simply that important and impressive and yet nearly impossible practice of learning to control the beast of your own sinful passions, your passions and mine, and it includes the passions that arise when we're dealing with that difficult person. My best guess is when I asked you at the very beginning of this teaching time to envision somebody, I bet you some emotions came with that image. And so thinking about self-control, I turned to a trusted author, Ed Welch, and thought about, well, how can we cultivate self-control in our lives, especially towards difficult people? Well, first thing I'd tell you is we need to check on our spirits and our actions. We need to check on them and need to place checks that combat our desires to exercise control over another person. See, control of another person basically says this, I want this from that person and I want it now. Now, what you desire from that person, it might be good, it might be noble, it might even be right, but self-control towards them recognizes that you don't have the authority nor the means to fully bring about what it is that you desire. Self-control means living within boundaries. God reserves the right to final judgment for every human being in his authority. It's not our right. And the truth is, I don't know about you, but it's, not in, our, it's in our nature to kind of resist boundaries. In fact, we love to plan other people's pathways for them. But the scripture teaches that it's God, the creator, that ordains the life of every person. And we get invited into his plan for their lives occasionally. And it's dangerous for us to fail to acknowledge rightful boundaries. Self-control means thinking before acting. It remembers God's instructions before we proceed. The, the way I describe it is like this. Sin is like a noise that drowns out the melody of God's heartbeat. And so cultivating self-control occurs through the word and prayer rhythms. It allows us to turn down the volume on radio static so we can direct our attention more clearly on what God's heart is 
for the difficult person in our life. Let me tell you what self-control is not. Self-control is not emotional flatness. It's not indifference. It's not just stoicism. It's not just releasing next steps to this concept of fate. It's actually the opposite. When we encounter difficult people, our relationship to God should excite our emotional intensity. Our response to our own sin should be tears and remorse. Our response to others should move us to see them as God sees them and actually ask for mercy in their lives. You see, when we see them as God sees them, their failures become our grief, not our victory. When we see them as God sees them, their successes become our cheers, not the source of jealousy. As followers of Christ, we ask the Spirit to consecrate our emotions so that our passions express a heart that seeks ultimately the glory of God. And listen, intensely desires the things that Jesus intensely desires, even for the difficult person in our life. Lastly, self-control is not self-dependence. We, we have this ethic in America that we'll just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, but we need to increasingly see self-control as a gift from the Spirit that's released in our lives to help us to fight against sinful desires towards another person. doesn't mean that we don't place an effort. I want us to, in, to cultivate self-control in our lives, but self-control apart from dependence on Christ remains a self-focused pursuit. Well, how do we continue to cultivate it then? It starts and should always start with simply acknowledging God's sovereignty, his authority over everything. And that includes his authority and sovereignty over the life of a difficult person in ours. And then we need to fire ourselves. We need to fire ourselves from the job of running everyone else's life. That includes running the life of the difficult person. It doesn't mean that we won't have some responsibilities in actions in their lives, but our authority is the authority of a steward. Our authority is a delegated authority, the authority of a manager. God is the boss, and we simply are his managers operating underneath his directions, and therefore we need to know the boss. We need to invest in regular times of word and prayer so we can gain some clarity about what our Father's character is like, what his desires are, what his instructions are, not just for ourselves, but in relationship to others. We need to pray that there's an overflowing of his spirit so that we can be strengthened, so that we can overcome the greatest temptations of our life, including the temptation of the shortcut in engagement with others. We need to choose carefully and wisely our responses to the difficult person in our life. And then we need to act accordingly. Can I just tell you as a, as, as a slightly older man, some of us just need to slow down. Some of us need to measure our steps more carefully. Some of us might even need to rehearse a godly script 
for the tough conversations with difficult people. You see, in that cave and in Getty, David had the opportunity to skip over a life of suffering and fast forward to the throne. But, but it wasn't God's way. It wasn't God's plan. Ultimately, David didn't make that choice. I encourage you, when you make the wrong choice, confess your failures quickly. Confess them honestly. When you fail to engage a difficult person God's way, then repent and resolve when the next opportunity presents itself. Persevere. It may be that you'll have multiple opportunities to overcome. Hang in there. Resolve. And then pray and release that very specific person into God's hand. That's where that person's life belongs. Renounce your right to be that person's king. Pray that you may see that person as God sees that person. Pray that God's will be done in that person's life as God's will has determined. Proverbs 25, 28 says, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. When we fail to exercise godly self-control, even in the difficult relationships that we find ourselves in, we are like a wall that is defenseless, a city that has no protection. So my prayer for us this morning is that each of us will desire to live a life of self-control, especially when it comes to those who threaten our peace. And so let me ask you again, what might be standing between you and the preferred future that God has for you? Is it possible that there's someone, some actions, some misunderstandings, some pain, maybe even some hatred existing that's become a barrier to peace? Let me just remind us, Christ followers should exercise father-honoring self-control towards difficult others with spirit-empowered surrender. I know that this can be hard. For some of you, the pain runs so deep it even seems impossible. Somewhere, somebody after this service or sometime this week is going to say, Pastor, you don't know the person I face. Let me tell you about them. Well, before that happens, let me tell you a personal story. Many years ago, I was at my last church at a worship service, and we were moving into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. And as I was reflecting, God brought a scripture into the front of my mind. And it's from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew records these words that were spoken by our Lord Jesus. And this is what he said. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now that scripture wasn't being preached and I hadn't read it in the recent past. In fact, I, I was startled by the remembrance of that scripture. And then a curious thing happened to me. I, 
I, I heard what I call a God whisper. Be right with your father. Huh? Be right with your father. I was not happy to hear that whisper. You see, going in, without going into great detail, like some of the individuals that maybe have come into some of your minds this morning, there was a lot of animosity between my father and I that had been developed over many, many years. And in all honesty, my dad was difficult. I was proud that he had very publicly overcome his alcoholic history with sobriety, but even he would admit that many of the toxic personality characteristics that made really deep relational um, potential possible uh, continued for the balance of his life. And yet here I am, sitting as a follower of Christ, preparing for the Lord's Supper, and God's whispering to me, be right with your father. Like David's men in the cave, I would have had people that would have told me that my animosity towards my dad was understandable. It was justifiable. I had been the recipient of barbs throughout my life. But I had two failures. And in that moment, I recognized them. The first one is, I was not guilt-free. I shared in contributions made in a deteriorating relationship. And I basically had to fess up. I had to come to terms with that truth. And even stronger, I had failed to release the control of my father to the Heavenly Father. And God's heart for me that morning was that I take action. And so in the middle of that service, without explaining it to my family, even as the Lord's Supper was being executed, I got up off my seat, I left that church, I drove my car, I got to my dad's house, and I knocked on his door. To say that he was surprised to see me is, uh, <laughs> he was not expecting that. And to be honest, when the door opened, it was awkward. I mean, it was really awkward. But I had God whispers. When God directs, we can work through awkwardness, right? So I didn't pull any punches. I, I obeyed God in that moment. I confessed my shortcomings as a son. I asked for his forgiveness. Listen, I made no demands on my father in return. I simply committed myself to a path of peace. And in my heart, I released my earthly father to our heavenly father. And in the end, I exercised control over the only person that I could actually control, me. And I don't do that really well. And I did it in the only way that was possible. Through the truth of the word that had been revealed by the Father through the person of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Spirit 
that had been deposited in me by him, which was now convicting me and empowering me to do something that left on my own, I could not do, nor would I want to do. It was his spirit bringing about change in me. I would love to tell you that from that moment on, everything between my father and I was smooth. That would not be truthful. Any more than it was truthful for David and Saul. But I can tell you that, that in my obedience at that moment, I did experience a type of spiritual and emotional freedom that frankly I had not experienced before. And so it was a profound moment in my life. It's what I call my cave at and Getty moment. It's interesting to me that if we were to keep reading 1 Samuel, we'll discover that just two chapters later, David has another encounter with Saul. In this encounter, he sneaks into Saul's camp while he's sleeping. He sees a spear next to Saul's head. David has another chance to take Saul's life. He's confronted with the temptation of the shortcut again. Isn't that the way it is with difficult people in our life? And just like David had more opportunities to respond to Saul's antagonism, I had more opportunities to respond to my father throughout the years. But, but by God's grace, I experienced increasing ability, increasing peace. I grew and matured, and I believe our Heavenly Father was pleased, and he was honored by my growing self-control. Last Sunday, I sat in that section up there and I had another one of those moments of self-control and reflection. As David Butler encouraged us to consecrate ourselves, my mind returned to some past hurts that still sting. And once again, I had to get rid of my right to lord my pain over another. I had to let go of any creeping bitterness. And then an image came into my mind and, and I hope that you'll forgive my poor artwork but as my close friends now know, when God provokes me, I tend to sketch. So there's probably a sketch uh, behind me from last Sunday. You see, last Sunday, I had to release my emotional grip on someone else, even one who was now distant through death, where there's really no danger to me any longer. And so by faith, I kneeled before God, our Father, with open hands and glad surrender and eager willingness, and I sacrificially obeyed what the Word taught and the Spirit convicted by submitting my emotions, still tingling from very real hurts, and placing them underneath His Lordship at the cross of Calvary. This morning, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I encourage you to exercise self-control towards some difficult other that's in your life. If that person is beyond a face-to-face -face reconciliation, then by faith release them and the memory of them to our Father. For you sitting here this morning, who is that person? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this morning we bow before you. We are humbled by your greatness. 
we acknowledge our weakness. We remember those that have hurt us. We recognize that we've perhaps been the source of hurt. By faith, we yield control over any other person in our lives to you, our Father, and ask that you would increasingly fill us with your spirit that we may be a more self-controlled people. To your honor and glory, in Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.